0: Rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, which was—that's uh, what kings did when the king would enter a city on horseback. It meant that he was was there for war. Uh, When he came on the back of a donkey, it meant that he was there for peace. And so on Palm Sunday, Jesus intentionally um, fulfills a prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9 that talks about the Messiah of Israel riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And so he intentionally does that. Like he, um, the way I described it last week was it's, it's like all the dominoes are set up and he intentionally like pushed the first one over. Um, and so that triggered, uh, all these, all these expectations and all these desires among the, the people of Jerusalem. And, and so the triumphal entry he's coming in the city and they're laying their, uh, their cloaks out on the road and they are waving palm branches, which is a symbol of, of victory, um, a symbol of triumph. Um, and they're, uh, you know, you you laid your cloaks out for a king. You would wave those for the victorious king, and they're they're hollering all this this stuff about uh, Hosanna, uh, Hosanna in the highest, and that um, in the Old Testament meant uh, we need someone to rescue us, uh, and then by this by the time in Jesus' day it it meant um, that was that he was the object of uh, that he was the rescuer. And so when they're saying Hosanna, they're saying save us, but they're also saying he like you are the one that has come to save us. And they're praising God and they're getting all excited. And you know, here comes the this is the guy who raised, I mean, he raised people from the dead. He gave sight back to the blind. I mean, he worked all these miracles. And so here he comes and he's the one, like he's the one that's gonna bring this delivery to Israel. And so that day, they treated him like a king. They thought that the revolution had begun that the oppression of Rome uh, was about to, to completely go away, that Jesus would be the one to lead them in this political and military revolution. Uh, he would take his place as the king of Jerusalem, as the king of the Jews, and then from there, they would eventually take over the world. That's what they thought was going to happen. That's why they were so excited. Um, and so that happens on Sunday, and then by Friday morning, they're wanting, they're wanting him dead. So it goes from complete, you know, just all this excitement, all this hype, all this, this new, this revolutionary spirit that's there. And then by Friday, they're ready to kill him. And the reason they're ready to kill him by Friday is because he was not what they expected him to be. He was not what they wanted him to be. He let them down. He was a disappointment. They put all their trust that he was the one that would, would be the king of Israel, and now he's arrested. Now, in their eyes, he turned out to be a fraud and a phony. Um, And so a part of what makes Friday so dark, um, not the only thing, obviously, but a part of it is the fact that he gets arrested and... Um, you, when you read, as the story goes on, they would traditionally let one criminal who was set to be crucified go, and um, it was up to the people to choose which one they wanted to be, to, to, you know, be freed, and they chose not Jesus. The people wanted him dead because they, he had betrayed them in their eyes. Um, and so the, over the course of Friday, he's crucified, he dies, there's darkness over the land. We had a... Uh, a time of reflection and meditation and stuff in the chapel on Friday night. And we it was intentionally very dark to begin with, but it, with all the stained glass in there, as the sun went down, it got darker and darker and darker to the point where uh, at the end, um, like we were going to sing uh, this song together and then walk out in silence. And like you couldn't see the words. Like you couldn't, I was playing the piano. I couldn't see the piano. Like I was completely lost. And it just, you, you, we came out of the chapel and you're back in normal light and you can't even uh, your eyes struggled to adjust. And that was such an object lesson for us as like as the darkness of what happened when the Son of God, when he died on that day at noon, it was completely dark. Um, and so, you know, that's Friday, and then Saturday's really, really quiet. And then Sundays, there's this eruption of joy and uh, jubilance and everything. And so... The people, they had these expectations for Jesus that he did not meet, and it made them mad. They wanted him to be something, and he turned out to not be that, and they wanted to kill him for it. Um, and the, the point that was just kind of brought out last Sunday was the fact that Jesus did not come to meet our expectations. He came to meet our need. And um, so that's what we're going to look at tonight, as the need that Jesus came to meet. So if you have a Bible, um, go to Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, If you don't have one, that's cool. We're going to put the verses up on the the screens, kind of follow along. We'll bring the lights up a little bit. Um, And so we're going to look at the needs that Jesus came to meet. I know there's probably uh, a diverse uh, set of experiences in this room. Um, Some of you have been through a lot of Easter sermons. Some of you um, have not. Um, I think that for those of us who... We 're very blessed to grow up in church. I think sometimes Christmas, Easter, some of these things we kind of feel like we, we know all that stuff already, and so uh, before our services every week, um, we take we take a 30 minute block of just silence and people come in here and they pray in this room and one of the things that we prayed was that regardless regardless of where anybody is in their life journey and their spiritual journey with the lord that that these truths would be fresh and would be new, that we would be teachable. By the spirit tonight so as we look at these needs um let's let's all just like covenant together that we'll look at this with with fresh eyes and with fresh uh ears um okay so let's talk about the need first one of chapter two and you were dead all right stop right there <laughs> there's the need you're dead that's the problem is that you me everybody on this planet We were not created to be dead. We were created to be alive. And it sounds certainly kind of strange because we're all living. Um, and, And that's a part of what the crowds, the disciples, the people who were so excited on Palm Sunday and then so angry on Good Friday, that's a part of what they didn't understand was that the need, it wasn't physical life and death. It was spiritual life and death. From the very beginnings of the Bible, if you look at the first 11 chapters of Genesis, it establishes the need for redemption. This is not a new thing. Jesus didn't spring it on them at the last minute. I mean, this was all of the the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. They had it all right there. They knew it. They just missed it, that you were dead. And in order to, in order to understand that, we... We kind of have to, to, first of all, recognize that when God made Adam and Eve, he made them in his image, which is the same terminology as, uh, as a parent and child. Because um, we, we may not understand being made in the image of God, but we understand uh, sons and daughters being in the image of their parents, that there is uh, genetic material that is passed on, and so they, they look like them, they act like them, they you know, inherit all that, all that kind of stuff. Um, and so God, when he made Adam and Eve, he shared some of himself with them. Um, not everything. He didn't share omniscience. He didn't share the fact that he is eternal. He didn't share the fact that he is all-powerful. But he did share uh, love and uh, grace and faithfulness and wisdom, um, knowledge. I mean, he did share some of those things. And so when he made them in his image, that was they were alive spiritually. They were connected to him. And then if you know the way that the story goes, the way that I tend to break the Bible down is God made everything and it was awesome. And then sin messed everything up. And then Jesus came to fix everything. Um, that's my very, very basic summation of the Bible. And so, um, so God made everything and it was great. And that was including Adam and Eve made in his image. And when they rebelled against God, when they um, decided that, that they knew better than him, that rebellion against the Holy one, separated them from him. Now, God's the source of life, and so to be separated from the source of life means that you are no longer living because you're unable to live on your own. Um, The way that I understand it the best, just being very simple, is that if you cut a branch off of a tree and you lay it on the ground and you come back 24 hours later, those leaves are already starting to wilt because that branch cannot survive on its own. It has, no way of, uh, it has no roots. It has no way of getting water and nutrients. And it's not, A branch is not designed to be a tree. A branch is designed to be a branch. And so when Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches, you know, he says, I'm the vine. I'm the, the main part of the vine that goes down into the ground that takes up all the water and all the nutrients, and you're the branches, and so you, you, I send the water, I send the nutrients, I send everything you need in order to produce fruit. And so we have to understand that Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. They were connected to God, and then because of sin, they were that that life-giving spiritual relationship was severed. Now, what's now that like? To me, like like that makes sense to me. That because of that rebellion, um, God being holy and them being sinful, that's separate. And actually, what it is, it's an incredibly gracious thing. For God to separate himself. If you remember the story. They, you know, they lived in the garden. And God kicked them out of the garden. If he, God basically had two choices. He could either destroy them. Because that's what, that's what holiness does to sin. Just like that's what light does to darkness. That's what bleach does to mold. I mean however you want to think about it. Like that's what, what is pure destroys what is evil. So he could have left them in the garden. And they would have been destroyed. Or he sent them out of the garden. So that they could continue to live. And he formed this plan to fix everything. And so we're going to get to that in a second. But it's real important that we understand, that we really understand spiritual death. Because that's where we find ourselves. Now, it gets, it, I don't know. It, let's, let's keep going. It says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Okay, like I just said. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Okay, let's look at that last part: carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. All right. So that spiritual death. Okay, the branch that's severed from the from the life of the tree. That's was that's Adam and Eve, and so and then they started having kids, and then. Um, more kids, and somehow there are other people that came in. We're not really sure how that works. And next thing you know, like the planet's full of people, and they're they're having families, and their, you know, generations are building and building and building. But all that goes back to Adam and Eve, and they started all that separated from God. They were spiritually dead. And so that means that us, when we are born, we are born spiritually dead because we are in that bloodline. And so um, when, it, when it says that we, we follow the passions, uh, passions of our flesh and the desires of the body and the mind, that's what spiritual death looks like. Is it's all about the desires of the body and the desires of the mind. So we start, like, spiritual death, you don't realize that you're dead, and that's, that's the weird part, okay? We're like the branch laying on the ground being like, I, I don't need you, trunk, I don't need a trunk. Perfectly fine without you. I don't need you. So it's all about the desires of the flesh, the desires of the body, and the desires of the mind. And so we begin to live these lives that are just driven for whatever it is that like makes us happy. Whatever makes our bodies feel good, we do it. Whatever makes our mind feel good, which sounds weird, uh, we do that. And so, so you, I don't know. Just take, just, just take relationships. Um, we want certain kinds of uh, connections with people so let 's just say let 's just say we want companionship that 's what we want that 's what our body desires and so we do whatever we have to do to get companionship and sometimes we we will literally do whatever it takes in order to have companionship and so maybe that meets the need of a need of the body. Um, and I don't want to explain that. Maybe that meets a need of the mind. Maybe that makes you secure. It makes you think that you're uh, worth something to have or, You know, to have that companionship. Um, maybe it. You know, maybe it just kind of just brings you to a place where mentally and physically, like you are being, you're happy, you're satisfied, you're whatever. And so it doesn't matter. Um, like nothing else matters. Like as long as I'm happy and whatever, uh, I will pursue companionship. Or it could be money, it could be a job, it could be a career, it could be possessions, it could be power, it could be whatever. Whatever are the, the desires of our body and the desires of our mind are that becomes the driving force. That is what spiritual death looks like. And I think when we think about it in those terms, we're like, okay, I i I understand that. I've I've been at that point where, you know, I can you kind of have a little bit of that uh that Cheryl Crow mindset, you know, if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad, right? We've been there before, like, oh well, I don't I don't really care. It's it's what I want to do. It's what I it's what I need, it's my emotional need, it's my physical need, whatever. And so that's spiritual death. And so Jesus looks at us and he sees that branch laying on the ground thinking that it's awesome, and he is like, No. You are not made to be focused on yourself. The situation I just described is basically one of self-idolatry. We begin to look for ourselves, uh, to ourselves to meet all these needs that really God designed us to meet. But we're dead, and so we don't really know. We're spiritually dead. And so if you go back to verse 1, you were dead in the trespasses, uh, trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. All right? The course of this world would be the fact that everything around us is feeding that self driven um, agenda that we have as being spiritually dead every advertisement you ever see is trying to appeal to your the desires of your body and the desires of your mind that's how advertising agencies make all their money that's how people sell products um, that's that's how the the world works and because everybody out there is has that that kind of agenda, that's why we have so many walls up in our society. That's why, that's why it's so hard to get into somebody else's life because they're kind of like, what are you, why are you asking these questions? Why do you want to know this? What's in it for you? So there's all this distrust, there's all this betrayal out there, and there's all these, like. and so the, that's, that's when it says the, the world that's out there, it's just the fact that it's almost like this, this web of, of everybody being self-driven. And so following in that means that you're born into that and you grow up in that. And you begin to watch that. And if you, um, if you don't think that exists, then you just just watch kids, like little kids. You work the nursery, you see that self-centered like, drive that's in all these kids. And I'm not saying anything about our kids. They're awesome. They're wonderful. Okay? But every parent, you know, they are very selfish. They were born like that. When they're hungry, they scream. If you take their toy, they punch you. I mean, that's just kind of, that's how, that's how it works. And as great as they are, and, you know, and it says nothing about the home they were raised in, that's a part of that nature, that spiritual condition that's there. And so you grow up in that, and it just, it's just kind of the way it is. And then the next part um, says in verse 2, it says, Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in sons of disobedience. So not only do we have this world that's out there uh, appealing to our, our body and our mind, but we have uh, we have Satan, we have the devil, who... Like, it, he exists, and he has these forces, and it's it's weird. And I'm definitely not one of these guys that thinks that he hides under every rock, and he, you know, he makes you get flat tires and makes you bounce checks and stuff like that. Sometimes you drive over nails, and sometimes you weren't very good with your money. And I don't think it's like everything is his fault, but there's definitely uh, a spiritual battle going on, also appealing to the body and the mind. So he says he's at work in the sons of disobedience. It's saying that all the people who are rebelling against God, all the ones who are spiritually dead, that, that the world is at work, that, the, that Satan is at work, and that our body and our mind is at work. And so you push all that stuff together. I mean, that's, for people who are spiritually dead, we got a lot going on. It's a very active death in a strange kind of way. It's not like normal death, which is just complete and final it's spiritual death where you end up living this completely self-absorbed existence. And then the last part, it says uh, in verse 3, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And this is, this is the part that a lot of people get hung up on, and it's, I mean, me too. Um, being children of wrath, basically um, God being holy is obligated to eliminate sin. So like I said earlier, when he kicked him out of the garden, it was either kick him out of the garden in a gracious way or destroy him. And see, sin is going to be destroyed. That's how holiness works. God is obligated to do that. And the problem is that to destroy sin means to destroy his creation, those created in his image, those who are like his children. And so that's the that's where that's where it gets tricky is to understand that in order for God to eliminate sin, He has to kill all of His kids, children of wrath. That He has to do something about sin. And so, that is spiritual death. And so, when we say that Jesus didn't come to meet expectations of humanity or the wants of humanity, He came to meet the needs of humanity. That that's what we're talking about. That everything that I just described as far as what spiritual death looks like, like that's the need to go from that scenario um, into one of life as he intended. And so that's, that's pretty big. And really, a lack of understanding of those three verses, I think is a lot of, of what holds us back sometimes. Uh, for people who are Christians and who are like, yeah, I just can't really seem to, can't really seem to like get my stuff together, you know, with the Lord. I think a lot of it is, we, we venture so far from what those verses tell us about our, our condition, uh, before Christ, that we we lose we lose sight of the fact of, uh, of what grace really did for us, and we'll get to that in a second. And so, all right, so let's go back to back to Adam and Eve. He kicks them out of the garden. Um, and God forms a plan to fix all that. Remember my three parts of the Bible. God made everything and it was awesome. Sin messed everything up. And then Jesus comes to fix it. And so uh, Jesus didn't, he didn't just show up you know, in Bethlehem one night or whatever. Um, from the very beginnings of the Bible, this has been talked about. And so what God did as a part of his plan in order to meet the need of being brought from death back to life... Um, was uh he he created this understanding that um that sin had to be punished, that mankind's rebellion against him like had to be dealt with, and so we know that that the cost of that rebellion would be your very life, that man's rebellion against God meant that man had to die. when you go back to um go back to the to the exodus story and everything, maybe you watched Ten Commandments last night. Uh, on TV, it's like 12 hours long or something like that. But um, you, you know that, that he gave them the, the Ten Commandments. And a, the, there are several reasons why that's important, why the Ten Commandments are, are crucial. Um, but he gave the Ten Commandments in part because w- humanity, we're a bunch of dead, like a bunch of branches that are all dead laying on the ground thinking that they're okay, thinking everything's fine. Like, why do I need God? Why do I need redemption? Why do I need a savior? Why do I need forgiveness? Well, I'm, I'm fine. Like, I'm, like the needs of my body and the needs of my mind are all being met. I'm finding ways to do that. I'm the center of my universe, and I kind of like it that way. So God gives these ten commandments. He's like, okay, that's that's cool. You just make sure that you obey these ten things. And in trying to obey those ten things, it quickly becomes obvious that you can't do that, like you just, you just can't, so when he's like, do not murder, at first, you're probably like, okay, there's no problem, until someone makes you mad, and you're like, why do I just want to murder you, it's like, all I want to do is take your life, like, oh, okay, the Ten Commandments, I've talked about before, they're designed to be like a mirror, that's what the law was supposed to do. You'll be able to look at, your, at the condition of your heart and realize, like, wow, well, I'm not okay. I'm not all right. All I have to do is keep these ten rules, and I can't do that. Like, why is it that I can't do that? Well, because there's a problem. And so he gives the Ten Commandments, but then he also, at the same time, he gives this, this Levitical law, and a part of the Levitical law was he created this, this substitutionary uh, system. So they understood, okay, it, it, the way that it should work ideally, Ten Commandments should reveal there's a problem. And the problem is that you're a sinner, and um, and your sins have to be paid for. But through the system he created, your guilt can be transferred to an animal. So he created this understanding of, I'm the problem, and that I have to pay for it, but my guilt can be transferred to this sheep or this goat or this bull or whatever— can die in my place. So, this whole system was created where, where they would go and they would take the animal, depending on how bad the sin was, and take it to the priest, and, and they would lay their hand on the head of the animal. And when they did that, their guilt was transferred, and then the animal died, and the person got to live. So, we need to, to back up into the beginnings of the Bible and realize that God set up this system for this understanding of, of showing that you're not okay, but this is the system where you can continue to live. And that price can be paid. And so all throughout the Old Testament, I mean, the whole time, um, like that's that's the way that it was. And they killed thousands and thousands and thousands of of animals. And all that sin was transferred and, and paid for. And that's why it's so weird that all these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later that Jesus marches in to Jerusalem and even his very disciples still didn't understand what was going on. They still thought he was going to be this military political king. And so um, so because God didn't want to destroy Adam and Eve, he sent them out of the garden. He forms this plan and creates this system of realizing that you're the problem and the the, the substitutionary option for each person that comes along. And the problem was that you, you know, a sheep dying for a person is not exactly equivalent. And so it might pay the price for sins up until that point. But let's say you go to the temple and you give them the, the animal and they kill it or whatever, and you're good to go. And then like on the way home, something happens. Well, you're, you're like back guilty again. None of those sacrifices were thorough. None of them were complete. And so all of this stuff, here's, here's the need. We have to understand that that need goes back to the beginnings of humanity and God's plan to fix everything had been set in motion. It's rolling forward and rolling forward. And so he starts talking to the prophets saying, okay, there's coming a perfect sacrifice to where you won't have to keep doing this. There's coming a, a leader who's going to redeem all this and fix all of this. So one day there'll be no, there won't be a need for lambs and Goats and all that kind of stuff. You won't have to to do all these kinds of things. One day, all this is going to get better when the Messiah comes, when the Messiah comes, when the Messiah comes. And so we were dead in our trespasses and sins, desires of the body and the mind, objects of wrath needing to be destroyed and dealt with. And then verse 4 is when it turns and says, But God... Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. But God, being rich in mercy, right? Talked about it in community groups this week. Mercy being his, his goodness toward those who are in despair. You read verses 1, 2, and 3, that's a very desperate situation That is one that is, um, it's very dire to know that you're dead, but you think you're okay, and you're following Satan, and you're following the patterns of the world, and you're doing whatever it is that you want to do, whatever your body and mind feel like you need, you're doing that. And because you're doing that and rebelling against God, you are by nature um, a child of wrath, and you are bound for destruction. But God, who is rich in mercy who has a wealth of mercy, who has a, a just this overabundance of goodness toward those who are in despair, and because of the great love with which he loved us. So you have mercy, you have love. Um, and here's where Easter kicks in. Made us alive together with Christ. Made us alive together with Christ. And so, so Jesus, on Friday... Uh, crucified, um, you know, he's lived this life, he, he is sinless, he is perfect, um, he is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, that's how the Bible describes him. He was the sacrifice, like the one sacrifice that was once and for all. So they have been bringing all these animals for all these years, and Jesus was the one to put an end to that sacrificial system. So he leaves heaven, comes to earth, lives this life. Um, does all this teaching, does all this stuff, never sins. And he, like I said at the beginning, he pushes the first domino down. Uh, He says in John 12, that nobody takes my life from me, but I lay it down willingly. He says, I will go to the cross. I will will bleed. Like it will be my blood that is shed for the forgiveness of sins. I will... um, I'll take all the sins of mankind, past, present, future. You just put them all on me. And then I will be the one that is cut off from the Father. I who did nothing wrong will, um, I'll be the branch that gets severed. And as I'm laying there, um, you pour all your wrath on me. Um, everything about your holiness uh, that is obligated to destroy sin, you just pour that on me and you pour it out and you pour it out and you pour it out until there is nothing left, until every sin that has ever happened or will happen is completely paid for. You pour it out and when it is absolutely all over with, it will be finished. And finally, um, we'll be Alive. Together. Jesus says no more separation between. The Godhead. And children. So he made us alive together with him. Second Corinthians 5 says that. He who knew no sin. Became sin for us. Like in the Old Testament. When they would lay their hand on the animal. It would transfer. It was transferred to him. And so we see that this understanding of sin has to be paid for, but there can be a substitute that had been established and practiced over and over and over and over again was now applied to a new sacrifice. And so he died. And when the Spirit of God made him alive, he made you alive, he made me alive, like, there's, there's this quote that was, went around the internet today from this, this dude. Uh, he said, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for yesterday we were dead. That when Jesus rose up, you rose up. I rose up. That God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love he has for us, made us alive together with Christ. So the death that Jesus experienced wasn't just his death. It was our death. And the life that was like poured back into him by God was not just his resurrection. It was our resurrection too. And so we were born dead in our trespasses and sin. And through Christ, through faith in what he has done, we are made alive spiritually. That branch has been reconnected to the vine and the life of God flows into us. The nutrients of God, the water of God, the life of God flows into us, and that is when we come alive. That is incredible. That's what Easter is about. Now, I'm not saying it's about us. And a lot of times we're so bad about making Easter about us, it's not about us. That should put us in absolute awe of God, of Jesus, of the power of the Spirit, of the vision of the Father, I mean, it should absolutely stun us. Not in a way that's about us. It should make us fall on our faces. That Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, even when we were rebelling against him and we deserved only death, he came and made us alive. it makes it kind of silly because we look at at look at Palm Sunday and, and the, the expectations that were there and then people got all mad and on Friday they were wanting to kill him and stuff. It's easier for us to look at them and be like, man, they just didn't get it. But we kind of do that too. It fits into our life as well. Because we kind of expect God to do certain things or him to be a certain way. We still have access to life uh, when we were, were dead. There are plenty of times when God doesn't he doesn't uh, rise to the occasion the way that we think he should, and so we kind of get mad at him. We kind of rebel a little bit. You know, just because we're now alive doesn't mean we always live like we're alive, does it? Because God set this up to where even though we're alive, we're still able to access that same nature as when we were dead. We're still able to reach into our past, so to speak, and to say, what, what's going to, what are the desires of my body, and the desires of my mind? And even though life in Christ is now, we're, we're not the center of the universe now. He's the center of the universe. He's the center of everything that we do. He's, he is life to us. Our lives are his, they're not our own. Sometimes we like to, to reach back a little bit. Yeah, but this is what I want. This is what I've feel this is what i this is what i need and so we still have this this tension that goes back and forth sometimes and so the the part of the journey i think for us like if you're a christian is to recognize like okay um, that self-centered way of thinking and feeling and living and making decisions and seeing the world that's that's from when i was dead why would i want to act and live and think and feel like i was dead So part of what we have to do is we have to look at what that life was like and realize that he rescued us from that. Because he's rich in mercy and because of the great love with which he loved us, he made us alive. He rescued you from the very thing that was killing you. That's the thing about wrath that we really have to understand is that sin was destroying us. And so God, because He loves us, He wants to destroy what's destroying us without destroying us. He wants to destroy what's destroying us without destroying us. That's love. I mean, if if you like if a parent if their kid's getting bullied, you know no parent just sits back and watches that. If your parent if your child is getting like attacked by a dog or a cat, let's say a cat, if you're getting attacked by a cat, you don't just sit there. You, you intervene. like You step in. So God devises this system of like, okay, I'm going to step in, destroy sin, but not destroy my kids. And the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to transfer their guilt to me. I'm going to pour all my wrath onto me. And when we start to think about it like that, it's completely ridiculous that we would want to live self-centered lives, that we would want to access that life from when we were dead. Why, when we have been made alive together with Christ, would we want to live any other way? When I think about it in those terms, I'm in agreement with myself. I also know that sometimes... I do the very opposite of what I'm talking about, and that's one of the things about like l- resurrection life that's so cool to us is that the resurrection. It wasn't this kind of thing that, like, okay, it happened, and like once you're like once you have been have crossed from death into life, once he's like rejuvenated you, um, you're you're good to go from then on. It's like no, no, no. See, all all you know is death, so. Um, what what God does is He brings you back to life, and then He teaches you how to live alive. He teaches you how to live in His kingdom. He teaches you how to live the kind of life that He designed uh, you to live. And so it's this ongoing thing where we're always learning, we're always learning, we're always learning, we're always learning. So until until you pass away or until He like shows up again, um, it's, it's just this nonstop journey that keeps going and going and going. And the longer we walk in it, the more we live, like, true abundant life, spiritually alive, the less we want to dig into that old nature and the stupider that looks to us. And eventually, in these new rhythms of life in God, that's just, you choose it less and less and less and less. That's why you see people have been walking with Jesus for a long time, and they're just not as, like, they're just not self-centered. They're just not as... They're just not like that. And the reason why is because they have been trained by Jesus to live the kind of life that he designed for them to live. Let's wrap this up. Look at um, verse 7. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. All right? So not only did he make you alive, but now we share that life that he continues to live with him. Like we have taken a place of honor. We have like we're we've returned to the status that we were born into by being created in his image. Verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. Look at that again. In the coming so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That for generations to come, um, he's going to take our lives and put them on display in the world and say, look how good I am. Look how gracious I am. Look at all these Christians who were rebelling against me and they deserved only death and destruction, yet I made a way. I stepped in and I did this because I love them. You might think, man, that sounds kind of arrogant. No? Sounds like a lot of love to me. It sounds like a God who wants everybody on the planet to understand exactly what spiritual death and spiritual life are like. So he brings us back to life and sends us out to go and to tell people. He sends you to work, he sends you to school, he sends you into your neighborhoods, he sends you into your homes. To display the immeasurable riches of His grace, expressed in kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. Like that's so. What what we're talking about at Easter is twenty four seven for the rest of our lives, like displayed through us, so that people see that and they say, "Wow, God is good." And we're able to tell them, "Hey, that goodness, it's for you, just like it's for me. It's not exclusive to." To anybody, it's open to everybody, everybody everywhere, all the time. verse 8, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. That's the thing, is that none of us could do anything about our spiritual death. When you are dead, you are dead. Lazarus was dead. It took God to bring him back to life. Jesus physically died. It took God bringing him back to life. You, if you're a Christian, you were spiritually dead. There's nothing you could do about it. It took God to reach into your life and bring you back to life. Me, spiritually dead, took God reaching into my life and bringing me back to life. It is the gift of God, and it's just about faith. It's just about believing it. Nowhere in the Bible does it say you, you do these 12 things and you get your life together and then you'll be good enough for God to, um, to cross you over from death into life. Like, nope. All you have to do is have the faith. You just believe that you're a sinner and you need the grace of God to bring you back to life and that Jesus was the one who came to do that, that he took your sins so that you could be alive. That's all you have to do. And when you believe that, that's, that's it. There's no magical prayer. There's no abracadabra. There's no whatever. I mean, it's, when you believe that, that moment of faith, that's death to life right then. And that is the need that Jesus came to meet. We were dead. But God, who's rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. It's a beautiful gospel. It's an even more beautiful God that we serve and that we love. Let's pray.